0: It is March 20th, 1952. We are at the RKO Pantages Theater, once again, in Hollywood, California. <laughs> <laughs> that was
1: my favorite.
0: <laughs> I'm going to restart. You can leave that in if you want to. I don't care. Um, <laughs> we've been hosted tonight by Mr. Danny Kaye, and uh, it's time for the big award of the night oh the anticipation can you feel it it's building up inside of you the envelope please and the winner is
1: an american in paris dum-dum-dum uh-huh. scandal 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 oh my gosh <laughs> okay
0: we get into it there's there's two movies that you're gonna zero in on as as your favorites for the year. I'm just guessing. Oh, without a doubt. Yes. <laughs> that is um, accurate. This is going to be this is going to be one of those years highlight this is my preview for people coming in. This is going to be one of those years where I think the ability of having uh foresight would have changed how this went down. <laughs> I can see that. Yes. Do do explain though. Um let I'm just saying that there is a movie that is weirdly ignored at the next year's Oscars, um, that is connected in a vital cast member and crew member, Mm. (laughs) Um, that uh, is considered one of the greatest movies of all time, and it's pretty much ignored at next year's Oscars. Yes. Yes. But it wins Best Picture, the same creative team wins Best Picture this year for what I think is an inferior film.
1: I see what you're talking about, yes. Okay. I understand now. I'm on board with you here. Are you you
0: picking up what I'm putting down?
1: I'm picking it up, but you're right. We have the ability of foresight. We know how next year's race goes down, and yes, the film that does gets largely ignored. Um, Yeah, I agree with you. I think... Um, An American in Paris winning this year did really hurt the chances of Singing in the Rain the following year.
0: I think you're right. I mean, that was a spoiler, Sam. I was gonna like, <laughs> I was gonna save the titles as if we don't know what they are yet, as no, if I they're don't. sealed on envelope. <laughs>
1: no, there's no Price Waterhouse here. We just reveal whatever we
0: want to reveal. <laughs> and we reveal it. Well, let's see what's going on with the Academy. It's the 24th annual Academy Awards. We're coming up on a big anniversary. We uh, really are. Our first really big, I think. I think. We did the 10th. Yes. We we observed that as Academy Files. Um, correct. But I think the tw- the 25th is it's
1: it's the marker. Right. This would be what the silver anniversary technically? Is that 25? Silver it, and gold is 50 years. Isn't that what it that, is?
0: That sounds right. That sounds right, right? <laughs> I mean, with Oscar, every year's gold, though. That's very
1: true. And we're back at the Pantages again. Danny Kaye is hosting, which here's my thing. I've never really gotten into Danny Kaye's movies. I know they're more like for entertainment value, less of like, you know, these prestige films. Um, Have you seen any Danny Kaye films? I have
0: seen The Court. I've seen The White Christmas, I think. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, And I've seen The Court Gesture. Okay, and that's one
1: of his more famous works. Yes.
0: Yeah. What did you uh, What did you think of it? Corchester was super. I mean, White Christmas is is, um. You know, honestly, I like it. I like it more than I did the first time I watched it. The first time I watched it, I thought it was silly. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think having that low opinion of it and then seeing it again, I I had more fun watching it and then view it as like serious, because it's not serious. It shouldn't be taken seriously. <laughs> Um, it's, just, it's just fluff, and right. fluff isn't a bad thing, but you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. Um, like,
1: like, there are so many movies being made nowadays that are just made for entertainment value. I mean, I mean think of, like, um, any SNL spinoff movie, you know. They're made with an audience in mind. It's for comedy. You go there for laughs. Yeah. These are comedians working, and that's what it's for. That's kind of what I think of when I think of Danny Kaye and then also like all the Bob Hope um, uh, Bing Crosby road trip movies, you know, that kind of same. Yeah. Yeah. I think that
0: the thing about white Christmas that maybe, maybe go into it with a slightly different opinion is just because it has, it's gotten a reputation just based on how convenient it is to play in December. You know what I'm saying? So it has like, it has a fabled reputation when you really just need to check your brain at the door to enjoy it um not saying it's stupid you know what i'm saying it's just like it's not no, right. it, it's not it, it's not all about
1: eve it's you know what i'm saying it's not it's not challenging to watch the movie i mean it's a holiday classic now for a reason you know it yeah. gives you that kind of warm family um just comfortable feeling when you watch it and that's what it's for and
0: the core gesture um is uh, very funny, and it has the it has a great cast beyond Danny Kaye. Mm-hmm. It has um, Glennis Johns, who if you don't, she's the in Mary Poppins, she's um the suffragette mom. Yes, <laughs> she's the grandma, and uh, while you were sleeping.
1: <laughs> oh, gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Yeah.
0: Yes. Um, she's in a bunch of. She's always funny. Um Basil Rathbone is uh, in it. Uh, Angela Lansbury is in it when she's still young. Uh, um or what I should say when she's still playing young characters because <laughs> she starts playing old characters before she's old. Um, Literally. You know, she what she's in uh we'll talk about her in Manchurian Candidate. Yes. When she's only three years older than Lawrence Harvey. And she Ridiculous. played Elvis's mom in Blue Hawaii when she's only eight years older than Elvis, so...
1: <laughs> this is how women get treated in Hollywood, everybody. Yes, it is. Gotta love it.
0: No, you don't. But, you know, it really helped her preserve her career, I think, because she never had to go through an awkward, you know what I'm saying? Yeah,
1: true. Kind of like, you know, where Elizabeth Taylor grew up as a child actor, had to transition into adult, kind of adult roles, but there was still that kind of that that in-between phase where she was not playing teenagers not quite playing an adult yet uh like for example her role in a place in the sun kind of more of like a socialite young 20s status she played that for a while too
0: yeah there's a lot of those early 50s movies that she's in or something like um well last week we talked about father of the bride um where she's like you know eighteen and Exactly and getting married because that's what eighteen years olds did in the fifties. Um <laughs> That's exactly right. Um so this ceremony, uh this is this is the last one that isn't broadcast uh that is not this is the last ceremony before they start broadcasting on television.
1: Yes, true. We're about to start a whole new era of the Oscars. I mean, then that's when it becomes this grand spectacle
0: to get TV ratings, you know? Then it becomes an actual moneymaker, I feel. Yeah, I think think next year is when you're going to really start seeing it become a big deal for the populace. Now, I believe they were usually broadcast on radio up until this point. Yes. But, you know, so much of Hollywood is the visual glitz and glamour, so... Oh, yeah. Um, So next week we'll be we'll have a lot to discuss in terms of um, in terms of how the the broadcast went down, because uh, because the first few years they do it in a very unusual way. So we'll have to discuss that.
1: Definitely so. And it becomes more, like I said, kind of a, a television event. You know, like we think of the Oscars today. I feel like whenever you read reviews of the Oscars ceremony, like the day after the the ceremony takes place, people are always kind of bashing it, saying, this is the best that our entertainment industry has to offer, it's so boring, it's so long, you know, you you start seeing things where there's so many musical numbers, they're singing all the nominated songs, like, for example, even this year, uh, the winning song, In the Cool Cool of the Evening, uh, Jane Wyman sung that on the stage, which I think is interesting because in the audience was Ronald Reagan and Nancy Davis, the future Mrs. Reagan. Oh I my think this, goodness. Isn't that kind of silly how she was That's singing really with her, fact. her exes in the audience? Kind of interesting, right? Like she said, too, they only had divorced in like 49. Exactly. And she, yeah, and she would be
0: a few years uh, removed from her Oscar win, yeah. And it's funny because, like, you know, Ronald Reagan is, uh... I would say at this point, almost having his career is, is, is nothing at this point. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he becomes the president of the, of the screen actors guild (laughs) at some point. And so I suppose that takes up a lot of his time, but as far as like being a star goes, like Mm -hmm. that's not a thing at this point. And meanwhile, Jane Wyman is really hitting like the apex of her career. Um, in the late forties, uh, to mid fifties, um, you know, and she's going to have. Uh, I think she gets nominated in a couple of years for one of them too. She has those um, uh, Douglas Sirk, uh, uh soap soap opera movies. Because there's one called the uh, The Blue Veil. Isn't that one of them? There's the Blue Veil. There's um, Magnificent Obsession. Yes. And there's um, All That Heaven Allows. Two of those have Rock Hudson in them, too.
1: Yep, that rings a bell, absolutely. Yeah, she definitely, in terms of star power, she definitely kind of beat Ronald Reagan in that regard, at least in the in,
0: the, in the movie industry. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll hold it there. Maybe not in the popular zeitgeist, but in the films, yes. Definitely. Um, I remember years ago, uh, you remember those box sets that Warner Brothers used to put out? Yes. Um, that would be like the the Judy Garland Signature Collection. And it would have, like, six of their best movies or whatever. Yes. And I remember thinking it was so hilarious that, do you know what the movie they included in his signature collection? What? Dark Victory. In his- and I, like, I was like, there are so few Ron- good Ronald Reagan movies <laughs> that they're having to include Dark Victory, where he has an incredibly small supporting part. Yeah, and just like forgettable,
1: too. Well, hey, let's just go right into the acting categories. Let's start off with um, Best Actor. We'll kind of run down here. We've got okay. <laughs> uh, the big winner for Best Actor was Humphrey Bogart. Now, this is for The African Queen, um, a John Huston film, also starring Katherine Hepburn. Uh, I've seen this movie. I think you've seen this movie, too, correct? Uh-huh. Yes, 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 yes. Uh so my big question for you is <laughs> do
0: you think Humphrey Bogart deserved this Oscar? Um, well, first of all, I think Humphrey Bogart deserves an Oscar. Yes. Um, and he he probably should have won for Casablanca, um, Treasure of Sierra Madre, um this one is a little perplexing. That said, this movie is incredibly well-regarded and and very popular, in spite of the fact that it's kind of like a mess. Um, and or at least that's how I felt about it after I watched it. Like I enjoyed it. it it's not. It's a. It's fine. And the two and Humphrey Bogart and Katharine Hepburn together are are an interesting pair. And the story behind how they made African Queen, (laughs) which was shot on location. Oh, gosh, there are legends. Yeah, in fact, Catherine Hepburn wrote a book about it (laughs) that I need to read at some point. I want to read it, too. Yeah, I haven't read that one. But, like, everybody got, like, super sick Mm -hmm. with parasites and and, uh, there were drinking binges with John Huston and and Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall came along and it it was just like nutso. Um, and so the legend of this movie though, I think is more interesting than the film itself, um, which the movie is fine. It's just kind of weird. Um, it's just, it's just unusual that this is the one he wins for when, um, there are better moments in his career, and I think this is a good example of what happens when an actor is passed over for movies he should not have been passed over for. Definitely, and like you
1: say passed over, he was passed over for like an entire decade, for the whole 1940s when he was huge movie star, you know. And he kind I, of defines the 1940s in so many yes. ways. and the fact know. that he went, yes. And the fact that he wins for a role which is so different from any other performance he gave in the 1940s, uh, I think you said it perfectly. It's a very interesting (laughs) win, uh, because I agree with you. I don't think the movie is all that great. It's fine. It's fun. uh, But in terms of, you know, Oscar caliber performances, I don't necessarily find neither Humphrey Bogart nor Catherine Hepburn um, at the top of their game at, at this movie. You know, it's, a, as you said, the, the story behind the, of the
0: film. yeah, you have to say too, like the two of them not at the top of their game is still better than most anyone ever, but yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where you can't, you can't be that mad because you want him to have an Oscar
1: and Absolutely. the person
0: who does get passed over in this category does win an Oscar in a couple of years. Well, I will say there are two
1: other performances that I would place over Humphrey Bogart's. Yes, Yes. one being Marlon Brando for Streetcar, but the second being Montgomery Clift in A Place in the Sun. For me, I mean, just for me personally, these are two of the greatest acting achievements on film. You know, in any decade, I think. And I think they're also two of the most important acting performances captured on film they really helped usher in that new kind of method acting um you know that we have that that we continue to see from cliff and brando and tons of other actors in decades to come as well
0: well okay um i i i would i would say that i would agree with you About those two performances being ranked over Humphrey Bogart and the African Queen. Mm -hmm. I think you bring up an interesting point, and I was just trying to check something. So um, the other nominees are Arthur Kennedy and Bright Victory and Frederick March and Death of a Salesman, which, interestingly, Arthur Kennedy won a Tony Award for Death of a Salesman. (laughs) Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And and then he was up against somebody else (laughs) playing the role he won a Tony for. Um, but he, uh, I mean, he got our Arthur Kennedy had five nominations. He's in a ton of movies. Um, he's very much, he was born in 1914, which means that we're looking at somebody who is not of that same school of acting. Yep. Um, and then we have Frederick March, who is a great actor, Actor. um, somebody we've talked about a lot on this podcast, mm-hmm. um, just because he gets nominated (laughs) and he's already, he's already won two Oscars at this point. Yes. He doesn't need another one, um, obviously, but I was just thinking like these, these two people and Humphrey Bogart kind of represent this older style. Um, and then you have these two insurgents and the Academy chooses. The interesting thing about this Oscar ceremony is there's this real divide and the winners and the nominees of, um, of the old style and the new style. Yep, I agree. And this is,
1: yeah, I feel like especially in the 50s is where we really start to see that turn go. And that's why I think what you're hitting on here is why I think Humphrey Bogart uh, is, uh, reigns supreme here is because... There's still more support for that kind of acting, you know, and I think the more method acting styles that Brando and Cliff were incorporating here are a little might have been a little off putting to some Academy voters, you know, the older generation, Um, because at this point, I doubt there's very many, you know, voters who are of Brando and Cliff's generation in the Academy who are able to vote, you know, so there's still not a whole lot of support for this new way and new style of acting. And I think that is why it takes a while for Brando to get his Oscar. I mean, this is his well, you first have to of respect, you know. exactly. And this is the first of four consecutive nominations for him. His fourth one being for On the Waterfront, which he finally wins for. Uh, and in that regard, too, if we're gonna play the game of like, you know, I I don't think uh, Bogart should have won. It should have been Brando. But Brando does get an Oscar for. An, an equally compelling and amazing performance for on the waterfront and he gets another one in the 70s for for another okay. equally compelling yeah. yeah so it's like i don't i don't think this is necessarily brando's oscar i am arguing here more for montgomery clift i think his performance is the one that i uh take away the most from in this category
0: i um i agree with you yeah because montgomery clift doesn't have an oscar i think that's really what this comes down to i think so, um, so. And I do think it's more important in the grand scope of history for Humphrey Bogart to have an Oscar than Montgomery Clift. I see With that. that said that is not to diminish Montgomery Clift. Mm-hmm. I'm saying as far as impact on film. Sure. Um, but there are other, other places where Bogart probably should have won. And there are other cases where Brando does win. So yes. this does feel like the year Montgomery Clift gets the most screwed.
1: Definitely. And if we're going to keep playing the game, too, like, I think Bogart can have this Oscar. But maybe in two years, let's say, 53, for from here to eternity, that might have been a better makeup for Montgomery Clift.
0: Um. Yeah, with that we'll award, to... then
1: yeah, we'll get to that one in a little bit. That's well, there's some more <laughs> playing around we'd have to do because that would be when yeah, uh, that's somebody else William who needs an Oscar, an Oscar. Exactly. But,
0: um, get to it, that later. It, yeah, rearranging rearranging the winners can be can be tricky because there's very few people you want to take Oscars away from. Definitely. You know? Um, it's just that sometimes the wrong person wins. Um, <laughs> I will say I am in full support of what happens in the other three categories. Let's move on then. Best actress. So yes, we have. go <laughs> the sure. categories. I want to talk about actress
1: last. Okay, cool. Let's go right. to supporting actor then. Yes. So this uh, goes to yes, yeah, goes to Carl Malden for a great. streetcar named Desire, great. Uh, who is yes, and he is recreating his Broadway performance. Uh, he went from stage right to the screen. He's one of several actors to do that. Uh, Brando also originated on stage. Kim Hunter also originated on stage. Um, and Carl Malden is absolutely fantastic in this movie.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm going to say, I think that Carl Malden probably is one of those char- those supporting character actor type people who you see in a gazillion movies And I honestly – I wish he had more than one Oscar because I think he is one of the most – one of the greatest, most dependable actors of all time.
1: Yes, and I think that's why he receives supporting actor nominations in two of the most influential movies of the 1950s, one being Streetcar, the second being On the Waterfront. Again, Uh Co-starring Brando. Actors, <laughs> and studios, and both,
0: Elia both, Kazan.
1: Exactly. And they're they're yeah. all from that same kind of mindset. But yeah, I the scene in Streetcar where Carl Malden finally holds Vivian Lee's face up to the light and sees how yes. old she is and says, you're not, what does he say, you're not clean enough to be in my mom's house or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Something like that effect. Um, it's devastating. I I think he's phenomenal in this movie. Oscar well deserved in my opinion. Yeah,
0: one hundred percent. I um and I, I truly love I, I love Carl Malden. He is such a he I, there's, every time I see him in something, I know that I'm going to like him. He's just Definitely he's just that type of he's just that type of guy. Plus he lived to be ninety seven years old. I mean ah, Love it. What else what else can he ask for? Um full life. Supporting actress also goes to streetcar. It sure does. Kim Hunter for Stella, Stella,
1: Stella herself. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Kim Hunter, what a what an interesting career she had as well. She would be uh, an actress who uh, testified in front of uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee and was blacklisted, mm -hmm. and it essentially ruined her career.
0: She comes back in like the sixties, I think, for some television, but this is kind of she's in uh, Planet of the Apes. she She plays the she you wouldn't recognize her because she plays one of the apes (laughs) i mean it's true though it is uh, is true that's just a funny uh, image in my mind she's a a, they she's dr zero which wikipedia (laughs) describes as a chimpanzee psychologist and veterinarian oh my god (laughs) um Specialist Hello. in the Study of Humans. And she's the one who has, like, a little weird romance with... Um, yes. <laughs> with... Um, Charlton? Um, Charlton Heston, yeah. So... Um, with Moses? Supposes.
1: <laughs> yeah, but she's... Okay, she is really, really great in this movie, too. Uh, again, re- recreating her role from Broadway. It makes sense. I, I personally am such a huge, huge fan when directors allow the actor to go from the stage and recreate the role for the screen. To me that only makes sense. Do you know what I mean? I can't imagine yeah. really anybody else playing Stella in this movie. Her relationship, especially with Vivian Lee, is so good.
0: I I love it. They're yeah, because they're they're sisters. They the are sisters, yes. And um very believably so. Um there is there's such an energy mm. with that I think she brings that really helps to define the two performances that are probably the considered the iconic performances in this movie. yes, but she's that third wheel in the situation yes. that helped everything spin and um, and she's just uh, she's just amazing. she is in a really good movie called um she's in a couple movies that I've seen early on there's a movie called The 7th Victim which is a really fun um Val Luton horror movie from the uh-huh. early 40s and then she's also in, in excuse me A Matter of Life and Death which is another uh Michael Powell and Pressburger movie um that has David Niven and it's uh it's just a great little uh life after death movie where David Niven's like I, I, trying to come like uh it has David Niven and he's like supposed to be killed in an airplane crash but he isn't and the person who's supposed to take him up um just missed him and he got he he then has to like barter for his life and he keeps going back between earth and heaven and earth is in technicolor and heaven's in black and white oh interesting yeah it's a really it's a great movie anyway she had an interesting career even before even before that even though she does end up being best known for playing uh for playing stella and a chimpanzee (laughs) (laughs) a hollywood career in a nutshell i mean really i mean Um, really okay so then we get to best actress we sure do um we got some heavy hitters up big time. for some awards here. We got uh poor Eleanor Parker who never won <laughs> but got some nominations. She also did not get the captain in West in uh the Sound of Music. It's just <laughs> always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Oh, so true. Poor girl. Um, then we have Catherine Hepburn. We discussed, I mean like Catherine Hepburn has plenty of Oscars when she doesn't win it's fine. <laughs> it's fine Um, uh there's some years where i really in the the end of the fifth there's a couple performances in the 50s that i think she's more deserving for than some of her wins and we'll get to that yes um shelly winters Mm. will will she's so annoying in a place in the sun (laughs)
1: uh but like rip my heart out stamp it on the ground she's phenomenal
0: and can I give a major spoiler here to talk about Shelley Winters? I wish you would. Spoiler Shelley Winters dies in so many movies. <laughs> she does. Shelley Winters, I think, died on screen or in film more than any other actress. Because if you think about it, and I'm about to give spoilers about a bunch of movies, so skip ahead if you don't want to hear what happens in these films. Um, If you think about it, she dies in, uh, let's see, The Poseidon Adventure. She dies in Night of the Hunter. She dies in Lolita. She (laughs) dies in A Place in the Sun. She dies in, um, what's the name of the film noir she's in, towards the... uh, uh, a Double Life. That's the name of the film noir that she's in. And she, right. like, the second you shows up, she, you're just like, oh, she's not long for this world. Uh. And I went to a screening of a version of The Great Gatsby from 1949. Um, and I saw her name pop, pop up in the credits. And I thought, I bet you she plays Myrtle. Uh. And sure enough, she plays Myrtle in the movies. So you know she's getting hit by that car. <laughs> oh my gosh. So just like start noticing that she dies in Everything. a very high percentage of the movies that she is in.
1: <laughs> she's good at death scenes. She's she really, really good at death is... scenes. She knows what Have she's
0: doing. Have you seen an Adventure?
1: Oh, yes.
0: Cause I that's... feel like the
1: only reason she got that Oscar person. nomination was for the death scene. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. Whenever she does the swimming and uh,
1: yes, I, I mean nobody,
0: like... nobody can have a heart attack on screen like Shelley Winters can. No, nobody can. <laughs> everybody has everybody has their talents in life, and that is what Shelley Winters gave us: good death scenes. Bless her. Jane Wyman already had her Oscars, so that's fine. Done. Um, so really, Eleanor Parker is the only one who gets who gets uh remotely screwed by Vivian Lee winning two.
1: Yes. But I mean poor Eleanor Parker, two nominations, back to back nominations, might yeah. I add. Uh in years where there are just some of the most iconic female performances of all time. Like what a
0: <laughs> what a bummer <laughs> And you can't like Vivian Lee, it's so funny, Vivian Lee didn't make very many movies. Uh, in fact I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna look at her filmography because she made a few movies in in Britain. Yeah. Um, that uh, let's see, she made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. She made nine movies in England over a few years, um, and then she got Gone with the Wind, and then after she did Gone with the Wind. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. She has nine movies, nine, released between 1940 and 1965. That is crazy. And so in two of 18 movies, she gets nominated for and wins an Oscar. And at neither one of those, you can... You can't disagree with her winning for either one of them because they're both such good performances, and she's British and she plays a Southern belle in both of them.
1: Yes, she's really <laughs> great at playing that Southern lady. So what I love about that too is she she did not originate Blanche on the stage. That was Jessica Tandy, but she did play the role in Who London. We sure will. And I was actually going to ask you. I'm so curious. What do you think the effect would have been had Jessica Tandy carried over and played it for the screen instead of Vivian Lee. Do you think she would have won an Oscar? Do you think, I mean, it's hard to tell because we didn't see her performance on stage, but knowing Jessica Tandy's work in later decades, do you think it would have been as compelling as Vivian Lee?
0: I find it, I mean, like Jessica Tandy had a really great career resurgence as an old lady. Yes. Um, and she made a bunch of movies after uh Driving Miss Daisy, where she was playing a lead in her eighties. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is super cool. Very She's cool. She's in like fried green tomatoes and and some other stuff. And um and she certainly was appealing at that stage of her life. She's also really good in the birds, if yes. you've seen the Hitchcock movie, um, she's kind of the glue in that movie, I think. Um, cause she's, cause out of that cast in the bird, she's the only like actress. Mm-hmm. Very you know? much so. Yeah. Rod Taylor's kind of just a, you know, a leading man and Tippy Hedren was plucked out of nowhere. A pretty um, blonde, you know, the pretty blonde. No, I mean, she's more than that. I'm not, <laughs> she is. Yes. <laughs> I've not, she's very nice. Um, uh, and she gave us an acting family. <laughs> yes, she did, yes. <laughs> Three generations now. Um, and is weirdly connected to John Johnson through all of that. What were you talking about? Vivian Lee. Vivian yes. <laughs> She had a lot of problems making this movie, too. Um, she, uh, at this point, was far farther along in dealing with her lifelong struggle with what was called manic depression we now call bipolar disorder disorder yes um and there were a lot of points apparently during filming in which she kind of just became blanche
1: yeah so it's really kind of a case of where art starts to imitate life a little bit and i think it gets a little like the lines start to get a little fuzzy especially in certain scenes in this performance yeah and
0: she she's playing a character that's going mad. And so in a way, Vivian Lee kind of went along with her in in real life.: And I have to believe as well that Elie Kazan
1: definitely played into that as well. He was very known for doing whatever he needed to do to get a performance from his actors and i I don't think he would have shied away from kind of bringing out that manic depressive um side of Vivian Lee during the performance.
0: Yeah, definitely. And do you think about like compare that to um George Cukor and Victor Fleming for Gone with the Wind? Mm-hmm. Uh Victor Fleming just being like a a macho workhorse yep. and um George Cukor coddling actresses because that's what he was known for doing. Yep. Like she goes from that environment to um to this, yes, to a
1: method performance director, because Elie Kazan himself was an actor at the group theater, learning
0: the method, you know, so all that kind of but Vivian Lee was not method no. vivian, Lee, vivian Lee is 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 like the only one in this cast who isn't method, which is why but...
1: it is so fascinating seeing her and Brando going kind of match for match in this movie it's two totally different acting approaches and they clash for all the best kinds of reasons in this movie it works so well
0: well. (laughs) and it's weird though because i you know in a way she wasn't method but she slipped into a character in like the most unhealthy yeah way you know,
1: it's kind of like doing method acting without taking care of yourself, because those who do the method, they they're aware of what they're doing to their, you know, their psyche and their brain. And they there are ways to kind of protect yourself while you're performing that way. And I wonder if she maybe didn't
0: know that having not trained in that type of acting style, you know, there's. Yeah. And it's sad. It's sad, too, because um uh we're not going to have another chance to talk about Vivian Leigh after this is over, even though she was in these two. Like, all-time iconic, all-time, like, top five best actress performance type situations. Yes. And she's very different in both of these movies. And playing Southern Bells in both of them, but very different Southern Bells. (laughs) Very different. (laughs) Um, And, you know, she she has very few movies left after this and her life uh, ends very early. So. Yes.
1: And at this point she's still with Lawrence Olivier which ends um oh 19 what 60 they get a divorce yeah, something like that years later. He goes on to marry Joan Plowright um, for his third marriage and I think that's kind of what did it in for her cuz she died what in 65.
0: 67. 67, Yes, it died in Who's significant? Oh, we'll have to think about that. Um, but you know, like I, I think that, I, I really think that whatever the effects of her disease were, probably is what did in her marriage. Oh Olivier, yeah. because there is something about the two of them that feels um, destiny. Yes. They they make so much sense together. And whenever you would hear him talk about her later, it was definitely like a soulmate for him. Oh, for sure. He just lost control. Yeah. I think they both did. You know,
1: I think it might be a case of neither was really taking care of themselves. And I think it kind of put a wedge in between their relationship, especially the way, you know, he talks about her. And so if you can tell, there's definitely a lot of pain that still
0: existed between them, you know? So Yeah, and probably a lot of guilt. Oh, absolutely, you know? You know, but but Laurence Olivier will have many other chances to talk about because he keeps working right up until his death, so... Yes. um, And uh, he, uh, I mean, he gets a nomination... For in the seventies, for working with a method actor, so absolutely, well, we'll get to that. It has one of the great. Go get look forward to the seventies. Have a great method acting joke story. Definitely,
1: um, I want to discuss a bit about the best director race. This is kind of an interesting race
0: this year as well. Um, these are have, these are all big names. These are these huge are like, names. These are all all five of these are like all time great directors.
1: Yes, so you have. Yeah. Vincent Minnelli for um an American in Paris who does not win. He wins later in the fifties. Um but what I think is super interesting about this race is you have George Stevens, um, director of Place in the Sun. You have John Houston, director of African Queen, and then you have William Wyler, also three of the all, five. Three of those five directors yeah. that we talk about a lot, you know, in terms of World, World War Two yeah. war films, you know, uh, three of them nominated in the same year. Um, I find that fascinating. This is George Stevens' first win, um, and one of his first productions. Post World War II, his post World War II activism as well. You know, when I was there's a documentary we've talked about a bunch, but the five came back about the five Hollywood directors who went to Europe and made these war World War II films. George Stevens arguably was changed the most out of any of these directors, and you see that in his filmography. I mean, take a look at the movies he directed leading up to the years of World War II. Comedies, you know, Woman of the Year, The More the Merrier, just light comedies. And now we're after the war, and we're getting some pretty heavy films from George Stevens in terms yeah. of A Place in the Sun. He makes Shane. He goes on to make A Diary of Anne Frank. You know, these very – like, he starts to paint the American dream and the American citizen in a much darker, darker light. And yeah. it's like that's most prevalent here in A Place in the Sun. I mean, these characters are just self-destructive and self-loathing. It's so interesting.
0: Yeah, no, it's – uh. A place in the sun, yeah. You know, since we're on it, is yeah. Um, it's 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 a such a great movie in so many ways. It's presented. It's so interesting that George Stevens directs it because it gets a presentation that is very old Hollywood in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, has the glamour in the way that it it showcases Elizabeth Taylor. And the way that you get these the the famous kissing scene between um, Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor, just these extreme close-ups of their face, mm, it's it's so, so erotic, but in a classic Hollywood way. Oh yeah, you know, um, in which everybody, you know, they look they look like movie stars. Oh yeah, it's a glossy kind of
1: super exposed, um, high light contrast filming. You're getting these close-ups; they just look
0: milky and just beautiful. Yeah, and so you get that but the story that this glamorous look is dealing with. And the contrast that you get in the way Montgomery Glyft is presented with Shelley Winters. Yep. It's it's just like it's just like this mix match. It's such a good signpost Of Hollywood history, I think, A Place in the Sun. Because you're getting some of the noir elements of the 40s. You're getting some of the gloss of the 30s and 40s. You're getting some of the realism that's to come in the 50s. But it's also wrapped up in this Hollywood-friendly package that has, like, you know, the, the super romanticized musical score. And and all it's just like yeah you're it's right a, that's a good it's description combination you know that's,
1: that's very true yeah it does really feature a lot of the elements that pop that were very popular in uh, past decades future decades yeah it really is uh, an important film as well yeah i love a place in the sun quite a
0: bit um it's i mean it's a great movie
1: it's really, um, really great, and
0: Montgomery Clift is great in it. I, I, the more I talk about it, the more I'm convinced that you're right, and he probably, <laughs> he's probably he's the
1: just he's just so good. I, I, his character, the arc that this character goes on is just so fascinating. You know, when he ends up actually killing Shelley Winters. You know, we talked earlier just, and then there's, and then there's the whole you know last quarter of the film where it's a trial. You know, this movie really goes through a bunch of different uh, plot points. So There's a lot in this movie. But it did
0: not win Best Picture. (laughs) (laughs) Tell Uh, me why,
1: Rance. Tell me why.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, The other two nominees that are nominated for Best Picture that we have not discussed, they did not get Best Director nominations. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is Decisions Before Dawn, um, another World War II film. Uh, and then we have Quo Vadis, which is a big, glossy MGM Technicolor epic. Yep. Um, the kind that they would end up making a lot of in the 1950s, particularly when widescreen comes in, in a couple years. Um, but this was part of that. Quo Vadis would be a good example of what they're doing in movies to try to get people away from TV. Yes, because TV is coming in right now and we'll talk more about TV next year when we talk about how the awards are broadcast. But um, th- we are going to start seeing a lot of movies in the years to come that are spectacles and are meant to get people out of their living rooms and back into a movie theater. Yep. Uh, not unlike <laughs> movies of the day. Um, and uh Then the winner is another kind of spectacle, I guess you could say. Um, Oh,
1: definitely.
0: Definitely. The, um, uh, An American in Paris. Yes. An American in Paris, uh, was from the Arthur Freed unit at MGM, which was known for making very slick, uh, solid musicals for years and years at MGM, um, the Arthur Freed unit was closely associated with Gene Kelly and Vincent Minnelli and Stanley Donnan and, um, and uh, Judy Garland and basically every big musical star of the forties and fifties at MGM came through this particular producer's unit at MGM. And an American in Paris, I think at the time might've been considered like the, um, like they thought like ah this whole MGM thing has this whole MGM musical things has climaxed with this delightful movie that everybody's enjoying this season. Right. That's the way that I, I think this must have gone down. Um and an American oh, yeah. is is a really pretty movie. Um Gene Kelly I I really like Gene Kelly. I think that he he's an incredible dancer. Um and there are some good songs in this movie, um, and and it's and like I just really I'm like trying to before I say the reasons why I don't think it should have won, I want to just drive home I don't think that this is a bad film. What I think it is is I think it is the wrong winner for the year because I think A Place in the Sun and A Streetcar Named Desire either one say so much more about what's happening in 1951. Yes. And they are better movies, but also they say more about it. And also having foresight, I know that next year, Gene Kelly with Stanley Donnan, not um, Vincent Minnelli is going to make singing in the rain, which is weirdly not nominated for best picture. (laughs) And is a far superior version of this kind of musical. Yes. And so I, I think yes. this is... I think it's I think it's a wrong choice. I agree with you.
1: Yeah, I, I... To piggyback off of that, I agree when you say this is a very pretty movie. That is incredibly true. It's beautiful color. It's actually... Uh, only the second color film to win best picture, which we're gonna start seeing a lot more uh in the years to come. It's also only the third musical to win best picture, which we see a lot more of that later too. Um right. but I think you're right. This is a very grand spectacle film. Um it's oh, pretty I was reading,
0: field and hold on. Great Zigfield and, and Broadway Melody. That, right. <laughs> that would be Both
1: correct. That would be Both MGM, yeah. So I yeah. mean obviously MGM knows what they're doing when it comes to musicals. When I was reading a bunch of Um, reviews of this movie back in 1951. It's funny that you mentioned that it's pretty because that's really the only thing the reviewers commented on. I saw it over and over again, them explaining how gorgeous this movie was, how pretty the sets are, and then when it comes to talking about... The actual story of this musical, you start to hear words like uh, a very slight story. Um, they say there are a lot of um, certain aspects of the story that are left unresolved. You know, his whole thing as a painter, they never really talk about in the last, you know, 20, 30 minutes of the film because why? It's all a ballet. Now, I want to ask you. <laughs>
0: um,
1: <laughs> I think you know what this question is. I, okay, personally, I have problems with dance sequences on film to me i don't think it's cinematic i doesn't really move me at all i i would rather see a scene between the two actors with dialogue or i don't know anything anything else um do you find the the ba- the 17 minute long ballet sequence at the end do you find it effective
0: um i think that there's some really striking visuals in it mm-hmm. I think about like the disappearing thing that happens in the smoke um, it's like oh God I can't think of what the setting in the in the dream ballet there's a point where the lights make it look as if people disappear basically right um, and so there there are some striking interesting visual things that happen that definitely showcase a lot of creativity and um and talent uh, personally um i i don't i i it's it's not it's not in this context, it is not my thing. I know a lot of people who love this stuff, yes, okay um I really like it i I have grown to really like it, and I've grown to love singing in the rain a lot actually that's that has become a movie I love more and more every time I watch it. And whereas at first I didn't care about the Dream Ballet much in that movie, um, I, I've grown to like it because I, I think I understand what Gene Kelly's saying in it now. Um, the thing I don't like about it in American in Paris is I feel like it's used to, like, after it's over, there's like a minute of movie left. And yeah, where she, where plot, she comes back, <laughs> and the plot resolves so quickly, mm-hmm. um, and it seems as if the only, the only motivation for the resolution of the plot happens in the dream ballet. That's kind of a Salvador Dali like, um, uh, summation of the plot. You know, yes, and. And I think what's missing for me and what maybe keeps this musical from cresting over lightweight entertainment for me is that the plot is very hurriedly resolved and the dream ballet ends up being more of a showpiece than it does um, something that um, I mean, like it's saying something about the plot, and I can't say that it, it doesn't. But it's like it it, it, do, it ends up stopping things, and then it stops things for so long that they don't they forget about the plot. That's, that's exactly really, what I was
1: going to say. That's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. This this whole dance sequence at the end you could take it out of the movie, and the whole movie would still make sense. And that's my problem with it. It's all it's in his mind. You know, he's imagining this love if the girl hadn't gotten away. You know what I mean? And I feel like that is... I understand why that works for some people. I get it. But to me, it like you said, it just completely stops the movie, and then we just go on this tangent for so long that it, it completely takes me out of the film, you know? Where well, um, yeah,
0: the rest of the songs are really more... um. They have something to do, like, with the plot. Well, they move the story along. Yeah, exactly. Completely... This really um, doesn't. Yeah, you know, and, it's... In, in, like, looking at... I'm looking at the song list, and, like, I Got Rhythm is in this movie. Um, Which uh, I'll say this, wonderful.
1: too. Um, this is the movie where I Got Rhythm debuted, because they bought the Gershwin, you know, catalog of songs, and uh-huh. no one had heard I Got Rhythm yet. This is the, kind of the first... Song. Totally, because I thought that was kind like, of everybody's cool. Everybody's heard it, you yeah, know? Yeah, you
0: know, it's, um, yeah, I understand why the music was very popular. Yeah, I think that—but, I mean, like, you also, like, okay, like, let's—the uh, ballet sequence, I am sure, uh, this is a point, once again, where we're trying to te- tear people away from television screens. So you have you have to give them something that they're not going to get other places— Yes, This type of dance was not something that a lot of people had had opportunities to see Sure, in any context, Mm -hmm. um, especially if you didn't live in a city where there was a ballet or anything like that. So, I mean, in a way, it makes sense that people would enjoy this stuff, perhaps in a way that we can't, because their accessibility to this type of art just wasn't there. So that's what I think maybe this the popularity of this at the time was about. I just think that in comparison in comparing the dream ballet and this one and the dream ballet and in singing in the rain, which the dream ballet and in singing in the rain is also shorter than this one. Um, the one in singing in the rain seems more like a tribute to movies to me. Yeah. Which makes sense in the context of this, of that film and yes, this one just feels more like We um, want to
1: see Gene Kelly dance for a while. Let's give him a whole yeah. whole,
0: <laughs> a whole I, I'm super happy that we got a gif of his butt out of this. Like, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Gene Kelly is extremely attractive and in great shape.
1: It's just, Um, for me, yeah, for me the movie is pure escapism, and if that's what you want, what you're going for, totally fine. But the story is there's, I mean, there's hardly any story there. There's a small love triangle, some unrequited love. It's nothing we haven't seen before, nothing we haven't seen since. There's nothing remotely um, I don't know, amazing about this film, you know? And I just
0: like things that everybody involved in this, um, including Vincent Minnelli, um, did other things that I like more. Yeah, that's kind of what my
1: feeling about it is. What I think is actually really, I'm just thinking about this now, is there's a line that... Blanche says in Streetcar, which has become very, very famous, where she says, I don't want realism, I want magic. And uh. I feel like that is very much the theme of what we're seeing this year at the Oscars. You get two films, Streetcar and Desire, A Place in the Sun, which deal heavily in American realism for the 19, early 1950s. And then you get a movie like An American in Paris, which has nothing to say about this state of the world in the 1950s. Well, you but know- it's just pure magical escapism.
0: Look at let's let's look at what the the main characters have in common in these three movies. Okay. Okay. Um, what is the commonality between Gene Kelly, Marlon Brando, and Montgomery Cliff's characters in these films? Poor. Yes. <laughs> so what we have are three very different approaches to poverty in America.
1: Uh, but let's not say America, because Gene Kelly is not well, in America in, Paris, in this movie. But uh, uh, <laughs> I see what you're saying. It's in yes. title,
0: actually. He is in Paris. <laughs> um, <laughs> but poor, but right. very different ways of of looking at poor Americans. That is very true. You know what? That's a really great point. I like that point too. Um, they chose the they chose the confection over the over the one that's maybe harder to look at.
1: Exactly. And I think that's where you have a differentiation between, you know, An American in Paris uh, would sweep with six Oscars. And while A Place in the Sun and Streetcar, you know, were nominated a bunch of times, many times in the acting categories. Again, Streetcar, another film to be nominated in every acting category. Um, But don't win Best Picture. You know, An American in Paris is, um, I wrote it down somewhere, it's the first... The first Best Picture winner uh, to win Best Picture without any acting nominations. The first time it's happened since Grand Hotel. Yeah. Um, which, you know, you don't
0: really see that a whole lot. And
1: this is another example of it.
0: No, this was um, this was an achievement of visual splendor. But here you go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce off of that idea real quick.
1: Do you think, though, that American in Paris, with its six Oscar wins, benefited... From there being the splits for black and white categories and color categories, because Streetcar Named Desire and A Place in the Sun won the equivalent awards, you know, cinematography, costume, uh, art direction in the black and white categories, whereas American in Paris won on the color side of that. If they were all bundled together, do you think an American in Paris would still win those Oscars, those technical Oscars?
0: I think the Academy of 1951 would probably be more inclined to give it to the color movie. Because it probably would have felt more innovative. I think you're right. Um, And it is is often a very... It's a beautiful movie. Like, I mean... Yeah. It's beautiful to look at. It's Uh, kind of what I would think... I would compare it to a movie
1: today like When Mad Max Fury Road... Mm -hmm. Uh, received, you know, 10 Oscar nominations, and it won all those technical awards, art direction, cinematography, costume, you know, all those um, showier Oscars, but didn't win Best Picture. That's kind of what I feel like An American in Paris is doing here, but it actually did manage to win Best Picture. I think it is stunningly gorgeous to look at, filmed beautifully, um, and I I do think that it, it benefited from being a
0: huge color musical. I think it's another one of those movies that we probably would be a lot less hard on if it hadn't won, yes, you know, I think that I think that there are some movies uh, several of which we've discussed recently uh mm-hmm. Hamlet uh going my way uh, <laughs> uh those these movies that Are are, you know it's they win best picture so they're not bad they're not usually a bad movie it's just like it's like sometimes it's very much like ah I don't Mm -hmm. I don't get how this happened and I I think I understand through this discussion I understand why an American in Paris won um I just think that the more interesting choice would have been one of the movies that says so much more about the direction movies are going in. Yes. But we are not going to get a film that represents that for a couple more years. That is very true. And then the 50s, I mean like we're in the 50s now and um we're uh, we're going to have another movie. I haven't seen it yet, so we'll see how I feel about The Greatest Show on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after The Greatest Show on Earth, we have, from here to eternity, um, on the waterfront, Marty. We get three movies in a row that say so much about the 50s. Yes. And then for a, a couple, and then in the rest of the 50s you kind of trade off between something like Around the world in eighty days, which is just pure, pure popcorn fluff, uh, and and Gigi, and then you have Bridge on the River Kwai, <laughs> and uh, uh, Ben Hur, and and all of those, I, I, they all say something about the fifties. I'm not going to yes. say that isn't the case. It's just um, there's like this real push-pull between. New and old Hollywood that's happening during the 50s and during the 60s as well, which we will talk um, more about. And I, I do think that there's a movie that comes out in 1961 that you'll agree... Dance is actually used very effectively on film. Yes, because it
1: actually moves the story along and has something to say about character. That makes sense to me. When you integrate it into the actual plot and story of your film, I it makes a movie.
0: difference. Literally, you know? Literally. yeah. Go We're ahead. hitting an interesting period because we are about to see this real struggle, like a 20-year struggle, basically, Yeah, um, between what Hollywood is going to become, and what Hollywood was. Absolutely.
1: That's very true. So we will be chatting with you guys next week.